This evening we shall consider a heart touched by grace and we're looking at Psalm 51. We see it at the beginning of Psalm 51 that it's a psalm of David and David was a man of God. I want to make that very clear from the beginning. David was a man of God and yet like the rest of us he had his moments where he stumbled and he stumbled big time uh, with regards what we see here. Look at the, um, the, the opening lines here. The superscript, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet came unto him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. Bathsheba uh, was a married woman and David um, went with her and um, then he arranged to have her husband put to death in a battle. A brave soldier, one of David's soldiers, and he arranged to have the, the, that Bathsheba's husband, Uriah the Hittite, killed in the front line of battle. Bathsheba bore a child and the child died. But uh, it was a very sorry episode in the life of King David. And uh, this psalm that we see here is a psalm of repentance. The Bible makes various references to God writing his laws in men's hearts or removing the stony heart and giving people a heart of flesh. In line with that we have King David praying in Psalm 51 verse 10 for God to create in him a clean heart. Again, David, the man of God, asking God to create in him a clean heart. Says it there, doesn't it? Verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Uh, If you remember back to whenever it was, just a few weeks ago, when we looked at Psalm 24, we saw something um, similar in Psalm 24. Let me just read it to you. Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord, or who shall stand in his holy place? He that have clean hands and a pure heart, who have not lifted up his soul unto vanity, nor sworn deceitfully, he shall receive the blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. A clean heart was the prayer of David here, the man of God. And you can probably figure out for yourself that David wasn't speaking about a a physical heart. He wasn't asking for a heart transplant or anything to be done to his physical heart. Rather, he was speaking of a spiritual operation. He was praying for a spiritual operation to be performed by the great physician, almighty God. And... um, This is indeed something that is done to all who belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, having trusted in him for the forgiveness of their sins. Such people, and that includes you in here now, if you're a Christian, you have a clean heart. You already have a clean heart. You have been cleansed and washed, purified 
by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ and you are already holy and without blame in uh, in love before God. That's your position before God. And yet still, this man of God, David, was praying for God to give, to create in him a clean heart. Clearly, at this particular time, his life did not uh, match what had happened spiritually when he first trusted in God. And uh, the the sin that uh, he was guilty of there was caused him to cry out to God for a clean heart and maybe this is something that we've all been through I I trust we have I certainly have even as a Christian even though I was cleansed and purified when I first believed in the Lord Jesus Christ sad to say there have been many a time when I have prayed to God uh, lines comparable to what we see here in Psalm 51 and verse 10 where David prayed for a clean heart people who have a clean heart are born again Christians they are new creatures in Christ old things having passed away behold all things uh, are become new and as one might expect the consequences are, or at least they ought to be, radical. If you're a new creature in Christ, you think about that. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, I think it's verse 17, I'm not sure. It, 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 that's where it says that you're a new creature in Christ. And when you think about that and really think about it, you, you, it's reasonable that there ought to be... Uh, a huge change, a radical change, when the heart of such a person, of you, if you're a Christian, when your heart has been touched by the grace of God. Such people, including you, if you belong to Jesus, ought to have a clear, have clear evidence of a new heart, in which the finger of God has written his laws. For example, you will have a heart that is sensible of or is aware of the holiness of God. Presumably, when you became a Christian, you had that awareness of that God is holy and you shrank in the presence of God. You realised just how much you are the dust of the ground. And not just dust of the ground, but sinful dust of the ground as you first heard or it finally hit you that God is holy and the angels in heaven cover their faces in his presence and as such it ought to grieve you when you sin against God the God of your salvation that holy God And, of course, your loving Heavenly Father. When you sin against him, it must make you feel really bad, as it made David feel really bad. David, no longer under condemnation. And I was flicking through very quickly earlier, and let me just read it to you. Um, What David said in another one of his Psalms. It's it's good to get um, to 
compare his psalms. So we get a balance here. Let me just read to you Psalm 103, the first verses. David was a man who knew that he um, was safe and secure forevermore. Again, we've looked at this one in recent times as well. Psalm 103. David speaking to himself here. I speak to myself quite a lot. Most of what I say to myself isn't worth mentioning or repeating. But um, there are times when it is good to speak to yourself. And this is one of them. Listen to David here. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Who forgiveth all thine iniquities. Who healeth all thy diseases. Who redeemeth thy life from destruction. Who crowneth thee with loving kindness and tender mercies. And I still remember when we looked at that. Crowneth thee with loving kindness and tender mercies. That means surrounding him. Not putting crowns on his head. But God surrounding him with loving kindness and tender mercies. Who satisfieth thy mouth with good things. So that thy youth is renewed like the eagles. That's David, okay? And yet still we see David in in Psalm 51 with this psalm of repentance. Because of this sin against the God of his salvation. And so he had very clearly, he had a, a a repentant heart. And your heart, I would presume, dear Christian, is um, more repentant now than when you first became a Christian. As the years have gone on and you, and you still sin against the God who loved you and who gave himself for you at the cross. And you think, what's going on here? What am I doing? Wretched man, wretched woman that I am. And I'd say this was the case with David. How can I do these things? And of course the answer is, we do do these things because of the sinful flesh. As you well know. But nevertheless, you have a heart that loves God. And it really does love God. It's very weak and wobbly, isn't it, that love? But there is a love for God. A love for God, a God-given love for God that others do not have. God loves you, you love God. And praise God for that. And you talk to some others about God loving you and you loving God and they'll either think you're crazy or they'll be deeply offended. Talk to a Muslim about love. Talk to a Muslim about God loving you and he will be offended because he would see that as being something um, that something weak. They see it as a weakness to suggest that God could love. And people would not understand you saying that you love God. And and you do love God. I love God. Uh, I love the Lord Jesus Christ for what he has done for me on the cross. For laying down his life for me. And so you have a heart that's repentant, a heart that loves God, and a heart that, that there's more, there's so much love in your heart, although it's not always 
evident, but a heart, a love for your neighbour. It's not what it ought to be, and that's why Jesus came into the world. Uh, we have a duty to love our neighbours ourselves. We have a duty to love God with our whole being, but we don't do that, do we? None of us do. Not even the Christians who have been Christians for many years can claim to love God as they ought to, or love their neighbour as themselves as they ought to. That's why Jesus came into the world. And we thank God for that. And there's never a moment when you think, well, I don't actually need Jesus anymore because my love is perfect. It's not. And you know that and I know that. But nevertheless, you ought to have a love for your neighbour. There should be something there. Otherwise, what are we saying about the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit? Not much at all. If we do not have this repentance towards God, a love towards God, a love for our neighbour, a love for the brethren, this is the work of the Holy Spirit. We're not giving ourselves the glory for anything, but these things should be evident in us. If God dwells in us if the when you read the bible we all know that the holy spirit dwells in us but you can also read of god and the the lord jesus christ abiding in you with with when you think of all that there really ought to be some love there and so it grieves us it grieves us terribly when we do things that we ought not do or we don't do the things that we ought to be doing. Also, if you are a new creature in Christ and God, the great physician, has performed that heart surgery on you, you will have a heart that submits to the will of God, to the will of God, at least sometimes, at any rate. That is your desire. That is your earnest desire to submit to his will. I think I, there's not a day that goes by when I don't at least pray that I would do the will of God. I mean that sincerely, every day. Uh, sad to say, it doesn't always work out that way. It doesn't work out that way. But at least there ought to be a desire to do the will of God. As the Holy Spirit is conforming you to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ, whose food it was to do the will of God. And so, as a um, as someone who belongs to Jesus, there ought to be some of that in you. You have new desires, the things that were so, so precious to you in the past, well, they're not quite as precious anymore. Because right at the top of your list of things that are precious is Jesus. New desires, new passions. You're someone who loves the things that God loves. You hate the things that God hates. And there's much more besides. This is all part of being a new creature in Christ. All things have, old things have passed away. Behold, all things are become new. 
But let us look at just a few of the characteristics of the new heart. First of all, it's a broken heart. I've already mentioned that, but let's look a little bit further here. Look at verse 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. O God, thou wilt not despise. Again I say to you, David was a man of God. This isn't his conversion testimony. It's good to realise that and to remember that. King David must have offered many sacrifices in his time. Uh, I've just got one. No need to turn to it unless you really want to. I'm just going to read one verse to you here from 2 Samuel chapter 6 and verse 18. And as soon as David had made an end of offering burnt offerings and peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. Well, on that occasion, David was leaping and dancing before the Lord. Very happy time, one might say, for David. We needn't imagine that David personally offered those sacrifices. I... I, I can't imagine he did. That was the job of the priests. They would have offered those sacrifices on his behalf, even though he was the king. The the priests, the, the priesthood would have offered those sacrifices. Also, David may well have made various sacrifices at other times in the year. Not just when things were going good for him, but when he was backslidden. Making sacrifices to God in a backslidden state. When he was fast bound in sin. I don't know, maybe even when he did what he did with Bathsheba and killed her husband. Maybe he made sacrifices then. Can you imagine he did? Is it a, well, I can see someone in here can imagine it and if you can imagine it it's because you can relate to that I can certainly relate to that I can certainly relate to being fast bound in sin and still going through the motions of worship that's what we do isn't it uh, and it's it is just a bit of an act oh, do you think God is pleased with those sacrifices of David if he offered sacrifices uh, during backslidden times, or not, not just picking on David here, any one of us, if we're singing the hymns, coming here to worship God, there's unconfessed sin, we're in denial about something, we know it's wrong, still we're doing it. They, uh, God rather is not pleased with those things. And we just go through the motions of walking with the Lord Jesus Christ whilst at the same time we have sin in our lives that is not being dealt with. However, here in Psalm 51 and verse 17, David was acknowledging that the sacrifices of God are a broken heart. Such a heart is the very opposite of a hard heart which is insensible to 
the burden of sin. If you've got a hard heart, then uh, you'll do exactly what I'm, I've just said. You'll continue with this uh, facade and uh, you will continue with um, outwardly to worship God, but inside your heart is hard. Insensible to the sin within you. It's a stubborn and rebellious heart in rebellion against the God of your salvation. Way back in David's time, for a king to take whatever woman he wanted and simply kill or arrange to have killed anyone who got in his way, such as the woman's husband, wouldn't have been such a big deal. You know, he wasn't a constitutional monarch, he was an absolute monarch, under God of course, but um, there was no one there to, 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 to have words with him. It's not if the Prime Minister or anyone else would have a serious talk to him. He was the king. It would have been a perk of the job. The king could just claim royal immunity and no one would dare argue with him. Perhaps other kings were mystified as to why King David felt any need to repent. Or if anyone knew him, his confidants, his uh, counsellors, they wouldn't have, maybe they wouldn't have even begun to understand what the big deal was. Nevertheless, to David it did matter what others thought. God did not despise his broken and contrite heart. And that was enough for David. That was important to him, the repentance here, which is recorded for us, for our benefit. Very personal things going on here with David, and yet they're here for us to benefit from, because we all get in a backslidden state at some time or other, and we all have that need to um, confess our sins before God. When you think about it, you don't have to be a king, an absolute monarch. You, you, if you explain to people that you're Christian because uh, you repented before God, even that, why? People, including you before you became a Christian, are very good at justifying themselves. Saying, well, it's not such a big deal. Others are doing the same thing. Get with it. And, or, or just deny the reality of God. That's the easiest thing of all, isn't it? If you deny the existence of God, there's no need for repentance. Or you put a spin on things. And so people don't understand it. They'll see you as an oddity. Someone really quite peculiar. A broken heart is not just some flash in the pan experience at conversion either. As I've said, Jesus taught his disciples to pray, forgive us our trespasses. Again, this is something I pray every day. It is repetitive. But what makes me do it is it's a prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray. And therefore, I think that gives it so much value. 
any prayer that Jesus taught us to pray must be good. Yeah? If ever you want to pray biblically, pray a prayer that Jesus taught us to pray. I don't know how many times I've prayed that prayer and I still pray it with meaning, although I frustrate myself. Um, Forgive us our trespasses. How many times have I said that? But when you say that, and when I say that, when I'm praying to God, Almighty God, to forgive me my trespasses, without contrition, those words are meaningless. If you're praying for forgiveness and you've got no heaviness in your heart, what are you praying for? What is the game that you are playing with God? Well, I did this wrong. I better ask for forgiveness. And then that's that, sorted. I can tick that box. We still sin, don't we, Christians? I'm not the only one. You pray for forgiveness. I trust you do. Do you have that contrition in your heart? David most certainly did have that contrition. C.H. Spurgeon said, If you and I have a broken spirit, all idea of our own importance is gone. Surely that should forever be the case with all God's people. The self-importance. Paul, what did he say to the Philippians? We'll come to it in a few weeks' time, perhaps, God willing. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Who, being in the very form of God, made himself of no reputation. This is the king of glory. When he came into the world, he made himself of no reputation. How much more so should we make ourselves of no reputation? Get rid of all that self-importance which the world is dependent on. If they don't have that self-importance, they've got nothing. We don't need that. We've got God. We don't need our own importance. We have the King of glory. And that should always be the case with all of God's people. The Christian has every reason to have a broken and a contrite heart, even in death. Not just at conversion, not just today and tomorrow if God spares you, even in death. That contrition, that brokenness. As it has been said, the repentance that accompanies salvation is a continued act. A repentance never to be repented of. I wonder who said that. Sounds familiar. A repentance never to be repented of. The Apostle Paul. That's it. Yep. 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 10. Repentance is a continual spring where the waters of godly sorrow are always flowing and the work of repentance is not the work of an hour or a day or a year, but the work of this life. 
A sincere penitent makes as much conscience of repenting daily as he does of believing daily. Is this really you, dear Christian? Do you have a continual repentance as you do a continual faith? So, first of all, it is a broken heart. Secondly, it is a clean heart. Look at um, verse 10. Created me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Dear Christian, from the time, you, as I've said, uh, uh, said so many times, I don't want to take this away from anyone, from the time you first became a Christian and your sins were forgiven, your position was and it always, always shall be one of being accepted in the beloved Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. You stand before God clothed with the garments of salvation and you are covered with the robe of righteousness of Jesus. But also your heart has been washed and cleansed and purified by that precious blood that flowed from the veins of Jesus at the cross. The Bible tells us very clearly that the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. 1 John chapter 1 and verse 7, all sin, I've got it underlined, I I always underline that word all. That is your position before the God of your salvation. But if you're anything at all like King David, whom God described as a man after his own heart, that's quite a description, isn't it, coming from God. A man after God's own heart. Your plea to God will nevertheless be the same as David, creating me a clean heart as you earnestly seek God's enabling grace to uh, deny ungodliness and worldly lusts and as you seek to live soberly, righteously and godly in this present world. You're looking to God continuously to create in you a clean heart, a heart for God. In John chapter 13, the Lord Jesus Christ, he began to wash his disciples' feet and Peter objected until such time Jesus said to him, If I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me. Whereupon Peter said, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. So Peter's wanting the whole bath there. If you're going to wash me, give me a bath. Then Jesus said to Peter in John chapter 13 and verse 10, He that is washed needeth not save to wash his feet, but is completely clean, and ye are clean. Jesus was telling his disciples, all of them, not just uh, Peter, but all of them there, you are clean. For the reasons I've already stated, washed in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, accepted before God in his beloved Son, clean forevermore. What happened there illustrated that, first of all, you need to be made spiritually clean. 
with the precious blood of Jesus by believing that he poured out his blood and laid down his life at the cross as um, at the cross as your substitute sin bearer you believe that you're a new creature in Christ you are clean all over from head to toe spiritually of course I'm not talking about the outside but spiritually you are clean after that you will need to have your feet washed as you follow Jesus on your pilgrimage that will take you to your heavenly rest the heavenly Jerusalem you still pick up dirt on the way don't you we all do every day even though you've been washed in the blood of Jesus you're picking up dirt every day of the week that was very much the case with David in Psalm 51 verse 10 though David was already clean he had sinned grievously and his prayer was for a clean heart As a Christian, the way for you to be washed and cleansed from the grime and the filth of sin that you pick up in this world and not forgetting those sinful uh, thoughts, desires within your heart that you continue to unleash at various times. The way to be cleansed as you pick up all that grime and filth of sin each and every day is what? To read the scriptures, the word of God. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 26 speaks of the Lord Jesus Christ sanctifying his church and cleansing it, cleansing the church with the washing of water by the word. It's quite a mouthful, I'll say it again, you'd have to read it for yourself. Sanctifying his church and cleansing it with the washing of water by the word. So the word, the word of God, the Bible, has a cleansing effect. The washing of water by the word. When Jesus poured out his precious blood for his church on the cross, he provided cleansing from every stain that sin makes. That's what the blood of Christ does, the precious blood of Christ. Since the work of Jesus on the cross comes to us through what? It comes to us through the word of God. We know about Jesus and his blood that purges us. We know about that from what? Well, when it comes to purging us, Hebrews chapter 1. When it comes to cleansing us, 1 John chapter 1 verse 7. I know these things because I read them in the scriptures. It comes to me, it comes to you through the word of God. That's how God speaks to us. And so since the work of Jesus on the cross comes to us through the word of God and the preached word such as now, it can be said that we are washed of water by the word. You here, Christians, Christians for many years, perhaps. You hear the word of God, you read it for yourself, and it is it has that cleansing power. It's the word of God, after all. And it tells us about a saviour who cleansed us with his own precious blood. Therefore, you will do well to immerse yourself in the word of God 
Let the words of Christ dwell richly in you as you look to the Holy Spirit for that ongoing work. It's an ongoing work of being cleansed and sanctified and conformed to the image of Jesus. You pray for these things as I pray, but you also read the word of God. You read the word of God prayerfully, praying that God will, uh, that you will be renewed, that you will be transformed by the renewing of your mind as you read the word of God. Or again, Spurgeon, let me quote Spurgeon. He said, Christ sanctifies and cleanses us by the washing of water. But what sort of water? By the word. The water which washes away sin, which cleanses and purifies the soul, is the word. Last of all, a heart touched by grace is filled with the love of God. It is a heart that is filled to overflowing with the love of God that is shed abroad by the Holy Spirit who is given to every Christian. We shouldn't shrink from this one. Love is a fruit of the Spirit. We can read in uh, Romans chapter 5 verse 5 of God pouring out his love. It's shed abroad by the Holy Spirit into the hearts of Christians. Not a little trickle. It's poured out to every Christian. It is a love that is best seen on a wooden cross where the incarnate Son of God bearing his own body the sins of all he came to save. Recipients of such abundant love are able to identify with the hymn writer who wrote, Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus, vast, unmeasured, boundless, free, rolling as a mighty ocean in its fullness over me. Underneath me, all around me, is the current of thy love, leading onward, leading homeward, to thy glorious rest above. The recipients of that kind of love are people who demonstrate that their hearts are filled with the love of God. They, they, they demonstrate it by living in obedience to God. You show your love for God by living in obedience to him and by loving fellow Christians in practical ways. You don't just wish them well, you do things Love fellow Christians by feeding them when they're hungry, giving them hospitality, visiting them when they're sick and telling others about the love of God towards helpless and hopeless sinners. When you have the the love of God, you can't keep that kind of love to yourself. May this be each one of you here having a broken heart, a clean heart, a heart that is filled with the love of God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and his finished work at Calvary's cross. Amen.